Good morning. Good morning. What an incredible time of worship already, amen? <clears throat> Having those kids sing, that's always such a blessing and, and always such a joy. Glad that you are here this morning in person, those uh, joining us online, those in traditions, those in kindred, uh, many places, one church, celebrating, worshiping the same God. If you have a Bible, we're in Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 14 this morning. We're in this series, Insatiable, Fear God. <clears throat> and today is the last message in this series. Hopefully you've been following along. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 14, you can scan the QR code. It'll take you to the Bible app. If you wanna follow along that way, that'd be great as well. So for the past, we have Bibles coming down the aisles. If you need one, just slip a hand up. You can borrow one this morning. Um, I know that <clears throat> many of you take them home and we always encourage you, if you don't have a Bible home, you need one, take it. Uh, it's our gift to, to you. For the last 12 weeks, we've been studying uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, the author, has taken us on quite a journey throughout uh, this entire book. He has tried all kinds of experiments and nothing has worked. He's tried everything. And in his pursuit, he concluded that everything in this life is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He talked about this, here's a few things that he talked about, this, this restless yearning and how, and then he talked about how three strands are better than one. He concluded that things don't make us happy for any length of time. He compared wisdom with, with folly, noting that biblical wisdom is quite different than, than earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom is just filling our minds full of knowledge, but biblical wisdom is the application of the knowledge of God. He talked about that and how short our lives here on this earth and that death is the great equalizer. And today, we're about to cross the finish line with Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes. When we choose to live life the way that we want, outside of God, it always leaves a residue. Guilt, shame, regret, consequences, sorrow, betrayal. One thing that we have learned from Solomon's experiment is when you live life the way that God designed it, it goes better for you. And when you think you are smarter than God and choose to live life how you want to live life, it won't go well for you. So we've gone round and around the track, so to speak, with Solomon. Now let's fix our eyes on the finish line. Verses one through eight is this idea of remember God. So he begins, he says this. So he's kind of landing the plane here and he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. What is he saying there? He's saying, enjoy life to the fullest while you are young and while you're able, and here's how you do it. He's gonna tell us how you do it. There are so many names for God. You might remember the series we did, the names of God. So many names for God in the Bible, and yet Solomon is purposeful. He's, he's intentional here in using the name creator. He says, remember your creator. He's now saying, after trying everything else that he could possibly think of, if you want to live a fulfilling life, remember your creator. The one who created the universe, the one who set the stars in place and he named them. He says, your name's gonna be this, your name's gonna be that. The one who created you in your mother's womb and gave you purpose and meaning, he's saying, remember him. 
The one who controls the water, the one who controls the wind, Solomon says, that's the one I want you to remember. Forget everything else that I have said, remember him. Learn from me, trust me, nothing else works. He's the one who's the ruler. He's the one who's all powerful. He's the sovereign one over everything and everyone. I think maybe he's beginning to revisit his upbringing and he's beginning to hear the words of his father ringing in his ears. His father was, was David, King David, and here's what his father wrote in Psalm 8, 3, and 4. So David wrote this, his dad wrote this, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set into place, what is mankind that you would be mindful of them, human beings that you would care for them? It's, Solomon sounds very similar here. What was David, what was Solomon's father saying? When I think about creation and the creator behind creation and I consider all of the works of his hand, it reminds me of just how small I really am. But even in my insignificance, I am not insignificant to God. What is man that you are mindful of him? The magnificent creator of the universe, he says, cares for you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Friends, when we start to get our mind around how much this ginormous God full of all power, full of all authority, a God who reports to no one can care about me, can care about you, my life, your life, now we're starting to get somewhere. Now the door can be cracked open, so to speak, to the idea that maybe, just maybe, life outside of God is meaningless and life in God has all of the purpose and meaning that we can handle. So the same God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand is holding your life together in the palm of his hand. Only when I see to connect the dots that the creator God who spoke the universe into existence is the same creator God who has my name written on the palm of his hand. Only then can I say, I will live a God-surrendered life. Only then will I make much about God and little about me. So in verses two through eight, he, he starts to go into this poetic form of writing. And if you just read through this, you, you probably wouldn't grasp some of the things that, that, that are here. But remember, he's talking about, hey, when you're young, remember God, okay? So here's what he says, starting in verse two. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. So he's talking about getting older. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what each, each verse, what he's saying. This is what he's saying. Remember your creator God before the lights go out and the gloomy seasons of life set in. Verse three, when the keepers of the house tremble, he's talking about your arms and your legs. And the strong men stoop, He's talking about your shoulders. When the grinders cease because they are few, what's he talking about there? Your teeth. 
And those looking through the windows grow dim, failing eyesight. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when the mouth is closed and you lose your appetite. When people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, hard of hearing. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, with age comes fear. When the almond tree blossoms, almond tree in blossom is white, referring to white hair. This hit home for me this week because I noticed this week, I happened to glance in the mirror and I noticed a little gray hair on the side of my head <laughs> and I plucked it. And that goes on. And the grasshopper drags itself along. What's he talking about there? Bent knees, just kind of shuffling along. And desire no longer is stirred, decreased sex drive. Then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. You die and people mourn your death. Verse six, remember him before the silver cord is severed, speaking of the spinal cord, and the golden bowl is broken, the skull, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring lungs and the wheel broken at the well, the heart. And the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Remember your creator God. Otherwise you will just go from youth to late in life and eventually die having lived life with no substance. Verse one through eight, remember God. Verse nine through 12, listen to God. He goes on, he says this. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. So Solomon, even in, in all of his, of his failings, must have remembered his request for wisdom. You remember, that's the one thing he said, can I just have wisdom? And he retained what he had asked for. He claims, are, his claims are similar to those of a prophet whom God speaks to and through. And then they express the words of the Lord. We're reminded in verse nine that he, he's talking about himself again. It sounds kind of funny the way he writes, but he's talking about himself, that he, Solomon, he did not storehouse all of this wisdom that God gave him and then just set it aside, but used it faithfully to guide people. As stated, he did not allow his brilliance to write less about truth and more about speculation and what tickles the ears. He refused. The wise, according to verse 11, draw their wisdom from God and their words are dependable and spur others on to action. And in verse 12, warns us that the pursuit of happiness and meaning in life that we read in books and hear from teachers outside of God can be exhausting as we have learned from Solomon. 
Now, this isn't to say that there can't be great books, there can't be great teachers outside of the Bible and God, but we must allow our Christian worldview to act as a filter and help us shape and to retain and apply and not allow what we read and what we hear to shape and influence and encourage a worldview that's not biblical. See how that works? Worldview has to come first. And then we filter everything through it. Not everything comes first and then we form the worldview. Because a worldview, maybe you've heard that phrase, but here's what a worldview is. A worldview is a, and everybody has one. You may not know it. A worldview is a collection of attitudes, values, stories, expectations about the world around us, which inform our every thought and every action. It's how we see the world, it's how we experience the world, it's how we live in the world. That's what a worldview is. So for a true believer, the word of God shapes our worldview from which everything else is seen through. It becomes the filter. What is he saying in these verses? Listen to God, read his word, know him, study his ways. Your intake, what you're taking in, will always influence your output. Third, in verse 13 and 14, now he's, he's gonna really land the plane. I, t- I told you in the very beginning of the series that he turns the corner in the last chapter is fear God. Listen to what he writes in, in the last two verses. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. So this is his summary out of all the stuff that he's experienced. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now he adds to this request where he started to remember God. He's saying now, fear God. What does it mean to fear God? What does it even really mean? I'm sure when we read or hear the phrase, or you hear me speak it, hey, fear God, all kinds of imagery probably comes to your mind. In Exodus 20, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, maybe you're familiar with this. So he goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the 10 commandments. And we learn in in, in chapters 19 and 20, uh, God had revealed himself in powerful ways on Mount Sinai. Do you remember any of this? Through lightning and thunder and smoke and fire and trembling. And so the Israelites are at the base of Mount Sinai when Moses goes up to get the 10 commandments and then Moses comes down uh, with the 10 commandments, right? And they're scared to death of God because the smoke and the lightning and the ground shaking and all this stuff is happening. But listen to what Moses says to them in Exodus 20, 20. See if you catch this. This is what he says. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. I'm gonna read it again, see if you can catch it. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. 
So, so as you might imagine, the people who heard Moses speak these words might have been just a little bit confused. He says, do not be afraid, but be afraid so you don't sin. Moses, are you, it sounds like he's speaking out both sides of his mouth. Do not be afraid, but be afraid so you don't sin. So which is it, Moses? And his answer would be yes. A healthy fear of God depends on a healthy view of God. The fear of God gets misunderstood by some who don't have a right view of God. The wrong view of God is that he's always angry, that he's vengeful, and he's always having a bad day, and he delights in zapping people, right? When one believes God is just waiting to punish someone, of course they would not want to approach him. They would live afraid of him and have no desire to draw near to him whatsoever. But on the flip side, if you have a healthy view of God, knowing he is just, he's perfect, he's holy, he's righteous, he's pure, and he's loving, when we see the full counsel of who God is, the full balance of who God is, that he's both just and loving all at the same time, then we wanna run to God. when we sin because we don't want to do anything that would disappoint or dishonor him. When we have a healthy view of God, and I hope you do, we're cut to the heart. Like Isaiah when he said, woe is me. He said, I am undone. A healthy view of God leads to a healthy fear, which leads to you moving toward God. An unhealthy view of God leads to unhealthy fear, which means you move away from God. When we have a healthy view of God, a healthy fear recognizes that sin is displeasing to God and we are cut to the heart because of our own actions and thoughts and because of our own judgments and our own condemnation. And instead of running from God because of our sin, we run toward God because of our sin. Because it is there that we find forgiveness and we find compassion and we find grace and we find mercy. You don't find that running from God. So to have a healthy fear of God is to have a profoundly deep reverence of who he is. Such a view motivates us to right living because we now have before us a desire to please God with our lives instead of pleasing ourselves. Acts 9.31 says this, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. But listen to this next phrase. So they're enjoying this time of peace, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So the early church grew in numbers. They experienced a time of peace 
they were strengthened and were encouraged by the Holy Spirit because they lived with a healthy fear of God. The church today is under tremendous pressure to just grow in numbers. The numbers will take care of themselves when we as a church keep our focus on living in fear of God. Solomon says in verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. Don't just fear God. He says, do what he says. James 1, through 25 says this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. So be like, you come to church and you just listen to me and then you leave and then you just walk out of here, okay? Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourself, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like, right? That's what you do, right? You look in the mirror in the morning, you're like, eh, and you walk away and you're like, oh yeah, what did I look like? I don't even remember what I look like, right? That's what he's saying. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, remember what wisdom is? The application of the knowledge of God, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. God's commands, God's principles, God's precepts, together they all have a purpose and they all work together. They were designed to get people to experience a life the way that God designed it. They act kind of as guardrails to keep us moving together, kind of in the same direction, and when we listen to them and we follow them, we find life. God is for us, God is for you. He's not against you. When you choose to live outside of his commands, it will feel like he's not for you. It's not because he stopped loving you, it's because he knows there's a better way for you. Cultural Christianity lives by a slogan that says this, live your life however you want, just add Jesus when it's convenient. Notice I said cultural Christianity. Biblical Christianity lives by the slogan, I surrender all. Remember God, listen to God, fear God, and you'll experience a life that is so far greater than a life on your own. It's not easy, but it's best. And the last thing I wanna talk about is trust God. It's Palm Sunday, I wanna transition just, to, just for a couple minutes and talk about out of Mark 11, one through 11. This is what it says. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and they found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread their branches they had cut in the fields. Those 
who went ahead and those who followed behind shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. The most tragic thing is not death, but life with no mission. Mark 10, 45 says this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came with a mission, he knew his mission. From healing the sick to traveling from place to place, Jesus knew exactly what he was supposed to do on any given day, because the Bible tells us he only did what the father told him to do. He understood his mission. He had lived an entire life of hearing his father's guiding voice even if it meant riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, knowing that he was setting into motion what we call Holy Week or Passion Week. Hearing the people shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You ever have other people misunderstand your mission in life? Jesus knew all about misunderstanding. The people who cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are the same people who just a few days later shouted, crucify him. They misunderstood. They wanted him to be someone and something that he was not. They wanted him to establish a kingdom that, that they had been waiting for, yet no matter how many people misunderstood his mission, he stayed the course. He didn't waver based on what others thought he should be doing. He was resolute. And because he was resolute, we can wake up every single morning with each new day having hope. And what Solomon showed us in his writings in the book of Ecclesiastes is that we don't have to settle for a life without meaning. Because of this week, Holy Week, ending with the celebration of the empty tomb that we'll celebrate next week, we can live a life of freedom and joy. If you, don't, if you haven't heard anything I've said, listen to this last minute or two. Because of this week, because of Holy Week, ending with the celebration of the empty tomb, you can have a life of freedom and joy, full of purpose, full of meaning. We can experience his love, we can experience his grace every single day. We can face the hard things in life knowing that he will not leave us alone. We can endure the ugliness of sin because Jesus died for them. We can live in victory knowing that Jesus rose from the grave in victory. Guys, be encouraged, be hope-filled. In just a minute, we are gonna close with a song called The Great I Am. Um, but before we do that, I want, I'm gonna ask you to stand because we're gonna sing this together as we close. And I wanna invite you to read with me the one thing, and it's found in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Would you, would you just read it with me? Okay, here we go. 
Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal.